it seems we're live. Um, welcome back. This is still our learning curve. We like in week three, this is episode three of the new uh, Africa as a country uh, talk, AIEC talk. It's live on YouTube every Tuesday between uh, 12 and 1, which is uh, Eastern Standard Time, I think 7 o'clock in, in South Africa, 8 o'clock in Kenya, 5 o'clock in London. I'm probably getting all the, all the times wrong. But if you're live with us now, then you're live. So welcome back, uh, Africa's a Country Talk. I'm uh, Sean Jacobs. I'm the editor, uh, founder of Africa's a Country. Uh, it's a website that's been going for the last uh, 10 years now. Um, yeah, is it 10, 11 years? Actually, it's going on 11 years. It's 11 years that the site has been going. Um, I would recommend that you check us out um, on, our, on our website, uh, africasacountry.com. You can check out us on Twitter, where we're a little bit more robust. Check us out on Facebook, uh, Instagram, etc. Um, today, we, 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 I'm going to introduce our guests in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, uh, so, but before we do that, let me introduce my co-host. Um, I think he's going to be on the screen in, in a minute or so, Will Shoki. There he is. Will is in Johannesburg. Uh, I'm in New York City. And uh, Will's been here from day one. So um, of this version of Africa's Countries Talk, uh, if you go in our, if you look at our, if, at our YouTube channel, you've seen that we've, we've done various iterations of this thing. Um, and Will is our staff writer. Uh, he's, um, you can check, check out his writing on, on the website, and I also recommend that. But for today's program, I thought it might be fun to start, Will, just by like, I don't, I don't know, to just get us going. Like, what are you reading? What are you reading right now? First of all, uh, one must acknowledge the enormous challenge that reading is during this time. I've got to be honest. Um, I'm reading a couple of things. Uh, I have a bad habit of reading multiple books at once. Uh, but I think I'll mention two books, which I think are perhaps uh, relevant for this conversation and generally the moment. The one book is, I think, a really exciting book that, you know, hopefully it would be awesome if I could review it someday. Uh, it's called World Making After Empire by uh, Adam Gattatro. And it's this book that sort of revisits the rise of anti-colonial nationalism after the wave of independence in the 1960s and in the run-up to that and reconstructs the anti-colonial nationalist project as not only being about uh, the pursuit of self-determination within each country's borders, but about trying to remake the, the global order in its entirety into one that is egalitarian and that secures the non-domination for all people. So that's the one book that I'm reading. Um, and it's really it's really interesting for the African context, considering that most Ethiopian, of- Ethiopian writer, uh, right? Yeah, she, she's Ethiopian-American, uh, Adam Gattacho. She's a, I think she's a professor at the University of Chicago at the moment. And most of the, the scholars, thinkers, and leaders she draws from are Africans. So it includes Kwame Nkrumah, Julius Nyerere, as well as other figures such as Eric Williams, George Padmore, um, Namdi Zikiwe. So it's a really interesting book. Um, and it's, it's, it's especially interesting for me because I've always been sort of skeptical of, of just nationalism as a project and have always thought it to be sort of regressive, one could say. but. This book is kind of forcing me to, to reconsider a lot of my strongly held uh, positions on nationalism and its relationship to internationalism. Um, so that's the one book that I'm reading. The other book that I'm reading is uh, The Socialist Challenge Today by Leo Panitch and Sam Gindin, uh, who are two you know giants of sort of um, 21st century socialist political thoughts. Um, and basically, it's not so much, yeah, old school, like super old school authors, super old school left wing politics. And it's not so much a sort of brand new intervention from, from them. They're longtime collaborators. It's not so much a brand new intervention from them so much as it is uh, a collection and um, slight modification of arguments that they've made before. So um, one one. It's one of the, the key sort of chapters in the book is, is, is an extension of their, their essay in 2017 uh, in the Socialist Register, um, party and state transformation or something like that. And it, it tries to sort of look at, um, you know, the Syriza moment, the Corbyn moment, the Sanders moment, 
and then ask what's next for, for the left globally. Um, I haven't finished it yet, so it'll be interesting to see what they say about left-wing politics in the global south, which you know tends to be something that a lot of these writers, if I can be spicy, uh, overlook. Um, but it's an interesting book so far. Um, and I think it's, a, it's an important read in this moment of sort of uh, re revisiting and reevaluating and, and assessing um, the Sanders moment and the Corbyn moment. So that's what I'm reading. What are you reading, Sean? Um, mine is sort of like, it's two very sort of, they're very different, like in the, in the, I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to say what I'm trying to read. So one yeah. is a book called, um, uh, Choice Not Fate, which is, which I've been reading for a while now, actually. It's, it's the story of uh, Trevor Manuel, who became uh, South Africa's um, first, I'm, I'm, you know, and we can debate this as we go on in the room. He was South Africa's first black finance minister. After so, after the end of apartheid, uh, the Mandela appointed during the transition, and right after the end of apartheid, he usually appointed a white finance minister, and then he started appointing Trevor Manuel. Trevor Manuel has a very negative legacy after apartheid because he became associated with the the neoliberal project as like the dominant project, you know, the, the economic model for South Africa, um, and so that, you know that's how people think of him. But but uh, he has a he has a long. I think he may have been like in his 40s when he became finance minister. And before that, um, under apartheid, he was kind of known as, you know, sort of very central figure in not just the politics of the Western Cape where he's from, but also nationally. So he became one of, became a national figure during the uh, emergence of the United Democratic Front, which is like the, the mass-based politics of the 1980s in South Africa. Um, but the book is really interesting. He's like the son of a garment worker his dad died in when he was really young, maybe like 12 or 13 in 1969. And his dad had like a political influence on him. That was his first canvassing. But the other part of it is just sort of like this rich history of resistance politics in Cape Town, which when I tell, when I talk to people about the book, you know, this, your comment earlier about the, the, the Atom book, um, when, I, when I tell people about the book, just mentioning like an incident or an interpretation of a series of events already leads to like a debate. With, with older people who were around or who were involved with Manuel at the time. So it's, it's been fun yeah. to kind of, I would read the book and read it aloud to like an, a friend of mine who also lives in Brooklyn and, and had been involved in the ANC in the 1980s. And he'll be like, no, 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 that's not what happened. So I'm enjoying that kind of reading something like that and, and sort of stop start reading it. And the second book just quickly. Sorry, just to ask about the manual book, is it, a, is it a, an autobiography or a biography? Is it a memoir? It's a biography written by a South African journalist uh, called Pippa Green, who was for many years, um, she, I think she worked on Rand Daily Mail. She, worked, she also worked for the SABC. She was the parliamentary editor after apartheid. Um, I don't know what she's doing now. You know what? Actually, she became his spokesperson. So I think there is an element in which she's kind of, uh, it's almost like it's it, it is a it's a it's a biography, but so there's an element of being ghostwritten to it, like that it's very favorable to him. You know, of course, he found somebody who's a friend and who's a confidant, and she wrote a book about him. Yeah, so yeah, it's definitely telling history from his perspective. Yeah, yeah. And then just quickly, the other the second book um, that I'm reading is called uh, The Rumble in the Jungle, um, and this is a book. You know, I don't know if people know, Rumble in the Jungle refers to a famous boxing match in in the then Zahir, which is what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 1974, um, between uh, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. And that fight also, it developed like its own mystique, like its own lore. Like, so it becomes this kind of moment of uh, Pan-African celebration. You know, there's all these musical artists go to Zahir, like Maria Makeba, Yuma Sakela, etc. The fight was paid for by by African leaders, although they kind of tainted the Tolbert of Liberia and Mobutu of, of uh, Zahir. Um, and at this fight, as we, which you know, I, people know the story, Muhammad Ali, in that famous style of like rope a dope, he beats George Foreman. I can't remember. It's like in the latter rounds. And at that time, George Foreman was like the most, you know, he was like Mike Tyson. But what's great about the book is, so that that's the kind of story that everybody knows. And also as a result, Muhammad Ali usually like, he gets the, the, the you know, the hero's treatment. He's, he's Muhammad Ali, he, he stood up, um, you know, against the US government, rightly so, to not fight in Vietnam. And so his boxing license was stripped. He did not uh, compromise on that stance. 
Um, and he became, you know, he, he also, people remember him later on. He makes some mistakes, uh, like some choices that he made politically, but eventually he's remembered for becoming sort of a figure of third world solidarity um, and a kind of an elder statement, like very much by the end of his life, he had Parkinson's, but he was in the mainstream. He appears at the Olympic games where he lit like the torch. Um, and George Foreman usually gets like the short end of the stick. But what's fascinating about this book is how it actually shows you how Muhammad Ali, like the, the rise of Muhammad Ali has, has partly has to do with um, something about the triumph of sort of cultural nationalist politics over a kind of politics which I would broadly describe as sort of um, liberal, kind of liberal left politics in the black community. So George Foreman is not necessarily the perfect figure or spokesperson for that kind of politics, but George Foreman actually believed in um, and was all for the promotion of, you know, he believed in the public. He believed in the idea of the public and public services. He did, he also made some interesting mistakes, but the point is just like the contrast, George Foreman usually gets a short end of the stick, but he's a much more uh, complex political figure. Yeah. Interesting. That's crazy. I've, I've never, I mean, this is the first time I'm hearing that George Foreman was even uh, a sports person who was politically inclined um, and and in the direction that you're describing makes him all the more fascinating. That's cool. Well, he started like his first opportunities that he got. So he grew up in this very poor part of Houston and uh, the some of the first opportunities he got in his life was to go to um, like a summer program, a government funded program in another state in Oregon. So, you know, he's this poor kid and the state pays for you to go on basically on summer camp. And there he begins to see like a different kind of world. He, he's, he, he campaigned and championed works programs like public works programs, but he made also other kinds of choices. Like I think he appeared with Ronald Reagan who was then the governor of California. He would go visit him, shake his hand. Um, I also think he appeared with Nixon who was, you know, very right wing and very anti-black. So, People, basically, it's Muhammad Ali wasn't necessarily as radical as we think he was. Yeah. That kind of politics became the dominant politics in sort of the black community in the U.S. It meant that people uh, moved towards the politics of, of Muhammad Ali. And there's one other quick piece on this. In 1975, Walter Rodney appeared at, a, at, a, 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 at Howard University, and he was talking about who African-Americans like support in particular African struggles. And one of these struggles was the struggle in Angola. And the, he, he noticed that people in, in the US were more interested in supporting somebody like Jonas Savimbi because Jonas Savimbi was wearing the Sikhis. Yeah. Uh, he was kind of presenting himself in a certain way when in fact he was basically being paid for uh, and being supported by South Africa and being supported by the US. Whereas the MPLR was actually the you know the, the radical alternative, but the MPLR was MPLR made these didn't necessarily use black power language, and so people didn't gravitate towards them. Yeah. Nice. Sounds like a great book. Anyway, so let's um, let's continue then with uh, that was great. Thanks for for I'm going to check out those books that you mentioned. Now we have a we before we move on because I think we've, we're at that time already. So um, we we. Today, we're going to focus a little bit on East Africa and specifically um, on Kenya. Um, we were going to talk a little bit about this, but I think we're just going to move to our guest, which is that um, there's been some very interesting developments in, in, in East Africa. As you know, in Uganda, there's an election coming up, I think, in, in a year. And the incumbent, Museveni, who came to power in 1986. Just, just repeat that to yourself, 1986. <laughs> And he's won, I don't know how many, five or six elections since then. So he's going to run again. Um, he, I think he changed, he changed the constitution to make it possible for him to run again. Um, birth date. He, he, he lost his birth certificate and found a birth certificate. Uh, there you go. This is our guest. This is my way of introduction. I like that style. That's our guest. Jumping in, that's Wangui Kamari. She's a contributing editor of Africa Country, and she's uh, based in Nairobi. And uh, she's here, and that was a great intro. That was a really lovely intro to just get you on the program. I love that. Which is, yes, he then he also, they had a rule that you couldn't run for president past the age of, what was it, 70 or 75? I think it was uh, 75. 
I'm not seven, mistaken. Yeah. And then he's then he had the rule changed, which means that you know I'm already I got to run again. So in any case, there's been some interesting developments. There where there's a young there was a young so. Ugandan politics, I think, um, and we've written about this on the website. We've had a couple of writers writing about the ability of the ruling party, um, the, uh, the revolutionary, what is their full name again? The, is it RPM? I totally RPM, forgot. RPM, uh, People's Movement or something. Yeah. So they, they have a way of reproducing power and of co-opting and uh, managing to sort of build consensus around their political project. And they use, you know, they, they have control of the army, uh, they have control of the electoral system, um, and they just do they just do enough also to to divide and rule over the over the opposition. But more recently, a movement emerged, uh, uh, mostly it's, it's actually a, a young guy called um, uh, Bobby Wine. That's his stage name, um, musician, and he ran for parliament in a constituency in Kampala. He won the election. Um, and since then, he has used uh, particularly YouTube, like music videos, to basically just, I mean, I think Museveni can't stand him. He's been arrested. He's been beaten up. Um, and now he's announced that he's going to run in the election. Now, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear from Mongui, who lives in, in the region. Um, I mean, from where I'm sitting, I don't think he has a chance. So is this is this more like sort of, just trying to direct politics in a particular direction, or is this, I actually think I can win the election. And there's one other quick thing I just want to mention before you answer. He also just made an alliance um, with uh, uh, um, Kiza Bezigwe. Bezigwe, I got it. Um, and so they said they're going to run together, but they don't want to say which one of them would be the, the presidential candidate. I mean, what do you what do you make of what's going on there, Wangui? You know, uh, I really don't know enough, but for, I, I'm, and Bobby Wine for sure has a lot of support both in Uganda and locally. When he was beaten and detained, there was a protest here. You know, there was a free Bobby Wine movement also in Kenya. But what's not clear is what he, I don't think he's articulated very clearly what he stands on or what his mandate is. But I think by virtue of what he represents, a young, poor man, artist, trying to create change in this country where uh, Museveni has been trying to hold on for until likely 2050 or whenever. <laughs> I, think, I think Bobby Wine stands a good chance, but I'm, it's not obvious to me, or I don't think he's made explicit what he or articulated his mandate or his manifesto, but um, he seems to be pro-poor, uh, pro-young people, and that's important. Um, because they're the demographic majority. So hopefully, yeah, I guess we, we just need to wait and see. But he has a, at least in Kenya, he has a lot of support. And from my understanding, that's the same in Uganda. He does, he does in his music videos, I think he's, so when we talk about like, what is it that he stands for? Or what is it that he's trying to achieve? In the music videos that I've seen, he's always kind of imagining like a world he doesn't say without Museveni. He just says a world in which police don't beat up people, a world if, in which you're sick, you can go to the hospital. So he's what you and what people in the West might call sort of a democratic socialist or left-wing agenda. It's definitely present, right, in the imagery that he displays. Um, but beyond that, you're right. It's not. Uh, not it's not that there's an explicit agenda. It's just at the moment, it's like we'd like to get rid of Museveni. Yes. And I don't know, I mean, to be honest, no other country, maybe CCM in Tanzania, historically had a more explicit for people's agenda, but n n there's no party in Kenya that has a manifesto that you could po point out five things and say, this is what they stand for, you know? So it's not an anomaly that he doesn't have uh, something like a, a solid articulated uh, message, because it's, no one, I don't know if that's the politics of the region, but no one appears to prioritize that here. But at least, like you said in his videos, he's down for young people, he's down to keep them alive, he's down to keep them free from violence, and that's important. Right, and just before we get into a sort of detailed discussion of Kenyan politics, which we're really excited to do today, mm -hmm. um, Wangu is like shaking her head, 
we, we <laughs> made one other quick stop, which is next door. And you mentioned you mentioned Tanzania, right? Which is the one. And that was actually good that you said that because I think we forget that it's the one place in East Africa. And we can. I don't know if it, is Ethiopia sometimes considered part of East Africa, or is it just always considered the one? Because they had also a revolutionary party, and we can debate the merits and the merits of that. But you're right, Tanzania is like that one place where historically there was a movement that actually articulated their own homegrown socialism that had a project and, you know, it's mixed, the record is mixed. Although I understand people are now again longing for to bring back Museveni, like, and they, sorry, uh, 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 Neherere, Julius Neherere, in which people sort of unfairly compare the present generations of, le of leaders, the people who came after what is known as democratization in the 90s, they always compare them unfavorably to him. And one of the, the we're just flagging this, we're not gonna spend too much time on this. Um, and recently we've been doing a lot of coverage um, on Tanzania and I'd recommend some of the pieces on the website um, written by Lei Singo and by Khalifa Said. We've had a bunch of articles by them um, uh, about uh, John um, Magufuli, who I don't know if you remember, a couple of years ago, he was like the darling of Western media. If you open The Economist, they used to have this meme called, uh, what would Magufuli do? Because he had a habit. Well, when he came to power, it looked like he was different. So he would do things like he would just go to a local hospital, come in, uh, disrupt how people were working and just say, oh, you're not doing your job. You should be fired. I mean, he, he basically he was seen as this fun hands figure. Instead, more recently, and especially with COVID, um, he's been shown to be sort of erratic um, and just doing things that just sound out of sync. So, for example, uh, he has he has gone on about how uh, COVID in Tanzania isn't really a crisis, and that and if it was, that people should just pray. And he's encouraging people to go to church, etc. He's also done what you know, coming from South Africa, people used to call the nihilism, where he he has questioned like the science, um, and he's made fun of the way that people uh, that scientists have actually tested COVID in Tanzania. And I know, Will, you wanted to maybe to say something quickly about sort of your perception of what you think is going on over there. Yeah, I think. Um the one thing maybe I'd like to start by saying that I think is interesting about East Africa and the continent generally, before I talk about Magufuli's politics, is just sort of uh, how difficult it is to mount an effective opposition in countries where one party rule is so normalized. And even after the achievement of independence or the transition to democracy, those revolutionary parties remain in power for so long that it's very difficult for an opposition to emerge that articulates a very coherent vision for transformation. So thinking about Bobby Wine and his inability to articulate what exactly it is that he stands for, I think it's as much the case in, in Tanzania with uh, Charema, which is the main opposition party and the Alliance for Change and Transformation which is viewed as being the more sort of left-wing uh, political formation in Tanzania, uh, which has emerged in recent years. Um, because, I mean, the CCM has been in power for so long and their, their hold on power is extremely strong. Uh, and there, there's also an election coming up in Tanzania on the, on the 25th of October. And all signs indicate that the CCM's grasp on power is only going to strengthen. And it's not just a matter of people or having this organic support for the CCM, but they're consolidating their hold on power. So never mind the fact that Magufuli has completely botched the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, he's also, for example, recently, the government's recently gazetted regulations, which says that come election time in October, uh, international observers will be invited on the discretion of the government. So it's not guaranteed that there will be international observers. And given the trend of media suppression that we've seen in recent months, it is likely that there won't be international observers. Uh, the you know, National Electoral Commission and the Zanzibar Electoral Commission continue to be unindependent. So the president handpicks who the chairpersons of those commissions are, who the uh, national elector, election directors are. 
So it's this, you know, it's a worrying trend that I, I think is, is, I mean, something that is, I guess, a mainstay of African politics, but is, is now something that is kind of reaching those parts of, of, of Africa, which we always imagined as, as being, you know, more stable, we haven't had as much of a war-torn history, um, who tend to be inherits of sort of British colonial, or who, who were previously colonized by Great Britain, and so have inherited a British parliamentary system. Um, in those countries, I guess we're, we're starting to witness sort of these uh, attempts by these, these, these politicians to, to strengthen their, their hold on power. Um, and I think that's kind of, that's what seems characteristic of like East African regional politics today to me. It, it doesn't help that the, the people who have a lot of influence in the region, which is the United States, right? Does not have a a um, elect like they don't have an electoral system that is that you would call fair. They don't have an, a national independent electoral commission. Uh, they do not have uh, a they they have a system which is which is weighed in a to to favor certain parts of the country over others. Like in the in the weight of your vote to vote for legislators, so they cannot put pressure on these on what is essentially their proxies in that area. Because they have other, you know, one one part of this is, and again, we don't want to make this about, oh, it's because it's the fault of the Americans. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying, if we, to go back to your early point, we're talking about books, if you think about internationalism as a politics, who can put pressure on the governments in East Africa to do better by the way that they run elections? It's like, you can't expect the U.S. to do it because they're not a good example anyway, you know, because they're rigging elections. I mean, let's just be blunt. Uh, by excluding people from voting, by drawing districts in a particular kind of way. So if their junior partners are trying to pull this off in Kenya or Tanzania, in Tanzania or Uganda, I mean, they think they can get away with it right now. And and a quick last point on this, it's hard for them to also get away with it because in the African Union, nothing happens. They know that in the African Union, they can also get away with it. I think that's the other problem there. I, it, and I could be wrong about this, but I think there's, there's less than 10 countries have a national independent electoral commission, which is not either run by the army or run by the civil service, but it's an independent body separate from, you know, from uh, the, uh, the, the machinery of the state. So the one I know the best, right, is South Africa. South Africa actually has something called an independent electoral commission, which is not run by a government department or the Department of Defense is not responsible for the running of the elections, the logistics of the elections. And I think that this is one big problem, just at the level of structures that we're dealing with um, uh, in, in, in elections in Africa. Yeah. But in any way, why don't we go ahead? We, we're gonna make our change now. Um, just to remind people, what are they watching? Because we just reminded people on YouTube to tune in. You're watching what we call an AIAC live, uh, talk, AIAC talk, Africa's country talk. Sean Jacobs, myself, uh, Will Shoki, who's my co-presenter, he's a staff writer on Africa's country, and then our guest, which you see in the middle, that's Wangui Kamari. She's a contributing editor of Africa's country, and also she's a, can I describe you as, are you a political, an urban political economist? Um, you could maybe say urban anthropologist. An anthropologist. That's my government title, but I just comrade. Everyone in Nairobi calls me comrade, but the the title I put on a card is is a urban ethnographer or urban anthropologist. So just by I know we want to get like it's also good actually to introduce. This is a great way to introduce the people who write on the website and who's part of our project to people. I mean, it might just help. Do you want to before we get into talking a little bit about Kenyan politics, just say a little about your own work and about you know what you do because i think it's important for people to recognize i mean I, we are going to introduce one of the projects that we work with you on more directly as apart from your general work on the website um later on but maybe it might help just to say to tell people who you are um kind of what do you do you're an anthropologist i know i know you work on issues around urban issues in nairobi right so can you say a little bit about that so i um i'm I, th I guess I'm a Nairobi resident and I've grown up here, although I went away for uh, university. And I, my 
I do a lot of research on urban exclusion and particularly on how Nairobi's, in essence, Nairobi's urban planning is a colonial process and it formalizes exclusion. So I do that formally, but also informally, I do uh, participatory action research in a in a poor urban settlement called Madare, and where we we do participatory research on access to water, on disability justice, on police killings. So I have these two. Maybe my formal job is doing research on infrastructure and and thinking about urban planning, but informally. And for the last twelve years, I've been trying to, uh, as part of a praxis, think about bringing together community research that. Uh, forms a foundation for local campaigns for a, a more just city because Nairobi is not is not especially it's not a very it's not even remotely a just city so uh, that's what I do and I'm, I, I'm a reluctant academic and I'm I am I think many of us are reluctant academics but I my most recent job was with the African Center for Cities at the University of Cape Town. Mm -hmm. So I know Will may have a question, but I'll jump in with the first question to you, um, which I think is a kind of a long sort of question. You should take your time because I think it's useful for outsiders who don't know Kenya, you know, who's trying to make sense of like what's going on in Kenya. I don't understand it. It might help to just start by outlining sort of the broad outlines of Kenya's sort of post-colonial history, its political history, and, and you know, take your time when you do so. And kind of just break it down for us, like, like, you know, what what happened, what is what are like the key moments that 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 lays the foundation for the kind of politics that we see in Kenya now that we inherited. Okay, I hope I hope my assessment is not very blunt and biased, but <laughs> I I will try. So, Kenya, forty-seven million people, uh, but a lot of poverty. Uh, recently, we were declared a lower middle class country, but that doesn't do much for uh, many people who are still waiting for, uh, like in other places, land to be redistributed, which never happened post, uh, when we got independence, and for just a life of dignity. So um, just a snapshot of key events in Kenya's political history between 1922 to 19... Uh, 59, if I'm not mistaken, there was an emergency period when the Mau Mau uh, led uh, uh, like the liberation struggle for Kenya's independence. We got independence in 1963, but unfortunately, the people who were fighting in the forest were not on the table. They were not there negotiating for independence. When independence came, um, not Uru Kenyatta, sorry, but Jomo Kenyatta, the dad of Uhuru Kenyatta, who's the current president, uh, just even if he had denied being in the Mau Mau, became the president, but he wasn't, he disembarked on a process of primitive accumulation for his kin, his, his ethnic kin, and unfortunately, um, many, many people who had fought for independence did not see any of the fruits of independence. So he takes power in 1963, uh, then embarks on this process of accumulation. Kenya in the region is like the principal node for capitalism. We still have capitalism, unfortunately. And so um, our politics is oriented around like capitalist exploitation, but also obviously a tenant to that is primitive accumulation and accumulation by dispossession. And then the political assassination starts. Really revolutionary leaders like Kyogama Pinto, who was a born Kenyan, who was part of the Communist Party of Kenya, who used to give guns to the Mamao. Uh, he was shot and anyone who criticized the government was shot or anyone who thought they, who they thought was competition was shot. So Tomboya was shot, even if he's also has uh, contested history and Kumboya is known as the person who helped uh, consolidate the airlifts to America that saw people like Obama's dad taken to the U.S. to study. Um, fast forward to 1978, um, Kenyatta dies 
and he's replaced by Moi, who then led the country for 24 years. And this was a time of complete authoritarianism, a lot of torture for people. The country was, uh, it became a one-party state formally, and it was still more capitalist accumulation, lots of plunder, and um, continued for 24 years. I know most of you have heard about Moi, and then uh, in 2000, and then, but along these years, there was always resistance. I don't want to make it, even if Kenyan politics is pretty heartbreaking, as formal Kenyan politics, I don't want to make it sound so uh, all women do, because Kenyans have always resisted in the ways that they can. Uh, and an example of this was the multi-party uh, rallies that were happening in 1992, that saw the reinstatement of multi-party democracy, but also the protests by the mothers of political prisoners who, together with Wangari Madai, uh, protested for almost a year, having a sit-in at a park close to where their sons were being tortured and kept. And so that allowed for political prisoners to be released. And then in 2002, uh, on the back, there was a coalition of civil society actors and, to be honest, recycled politicians, but they came and uh, they won an election in 2002. This was, but this is after Moi conceded that he wouldn't run again. So this is 2002. Kenyans have voted the happiest people on the planet. <laughs> they have a new, they have a new government. Moi's gone, everyone is full of mirth and like, everything is possible. But really, it wasn't, um, it didn't render the changes that people wanted, unfortunately. So Moi Kipaki was in, we still love capitalism. We still, we still think we're the best thing since sliced bread in the region. Kenyans really, actually, unfortunately, have a superiority complex in the region. And then um, we have post-election violence in 2007, 2008, when Mwai Kibaki, who was running against Raila, didn't concede an election that everyone knows was stolen and rigged. And that was a really, a really dark moment uh, because the over 1,200 people who were killed have never had any redress, land issues have never been redressed. And the two people who had cases in the ICC, principally because of this violence, Muru Kenyatta and uh, William Ruto, are now our leaders. So we really, in 2013, running in some ways on a campaign uh, that was anti-imperialist because they said they were taken to the ICC by imperialists. They won the election even if they had like five charges each at least. Uh, at the ICC, and we're still dealing with these figures, um, and our opposition no doesn't really exist. And people may wonder why I haven't mentioned Raila because, I mean, in some ways, Raila has is no longer an opposition leader. He's now been through a a, a process called a handshake, um, or the Building Bridges Initiative, which people all know is the Building Billionaires Initiative. Um, they're trying to form this coalition that supposedly they to unify Kenyans and now is being used to ostracize uh, William Ruto, who, who had run it before. And just to conclude, I mean, it really is, if you look, Raila, for example, is the son of the first vice president and Uhuru Kenyatta is the son of the first president. So if those are the two principal leaders in our country, you can see that if you don't belong to a historically elite family, you have no chance to form a politics. And this, the government has a really, it's just, as, it's just populated by people whose fathers were chiefs or archbishops or in the colonial administration. And that's, that's what we're stuck with. And just to conclude, I mean, um, you had asked me what it is, and I would say Kenyan politics is basically musical chairs by geriatric male politicians who 
have no commitment to the common people's struggle, unfortunately. Um, Will, do you do you want to do a follow-up? I was going to mention before Will ask. I did see a story the other day that Odinga Sun is now lining up with Uhuru against um, uh, Ruto. Mm, you know, he has a son who talks a lot on Twitter, but I'm not sure that he's uh, political. It's more his daughter who was running to be MP in Kibera, uh, which Raila had held for about uh, 20 or so years, but then she got sick. But I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised, but that son doesn't have... Uh, okay. Not like... He just, like most Kenyans, uh, talks a lot on Twitter, but I don't <laughs> think he has any... Uh, at least I'm not sure. I don't think it's political. I think Kenyans, uh, Will, you're going to ask a question. I think Kenyans are going to cancel us after this. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Kenyans are going to cancel us, but I, I think South Africans too. I mean, something that, you know, uh, I was struck by your, your wonderful exposition just now is uh, the moment when you spoke about how Kenyans have a superiority complex in the region. And I found that amusing because uh, my family's from Tanzania and, and Tanzanians despise Kenyans for precisely that reason. But when I think about that, I also think about how South Africans also have a superiority complex in relation to the entire continent. So something I wonder is that when you think about Kenya and South Africa, our post-colonial trajectory is very similar in terms of who colonized us, in terms of the institutions and state forms that we inherited from them, the revolutionary movements that came into power on the pretense of wanting to continue the march of transformation, but then betraying, so to speak, those ambitions and then devolving into cycles of repeated political dysfunction, very obvious political violence flaring up in a lot of moments um and ruled by a very noticeable and obvious elite but like in spite of all of this you know south africans and kenyans still have that uh, exceptionalism and I, I really i mean something i've been thinking about a lot lately is trying to just understand where on earth does that come from because it feels to me like especially in the public imagination one big barrier to getting people to deal seriously with a lot of the the problems that afflict us today you know, and you know, one, uh, I'm sure there are many, I think Kenya is, uh, we were, we were, uh, I think we've been fostered on this notion that this Tanzanian, these Tanzanians, they chose scientific socialism. They didn't even have bread in their stores. You know, this notion uh, that people who chose socialism were lazy and they didn't want to work. And that's unfortunate because it's, it per pervades many spheres, but it's being contested uh, by young people who are down for Pan-Africanism because this, this exceptionalism really impedes any real uh, Pan-Africanism. It's what allows us to go invade Somalia when we think that we're going to be like a proxy, proxy vector for the imperial powers to go and invade Somalia. So unfortunately, it has, as much as I make fun of it, it has really sinister consequences, but... Um, it's really, I need to say that it's being contested by young people, but it really, it, I think it's informed by this um, perception that we are, we are better because our economy is bigger and better and we speak better English or, you know, just things that are, that don't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, uh, since we're a follow-up to that, because it's related to a question that somebody asked on the, on the live in the, in the, you know, we, we're encouraging people to ask questions. So to is there, um, I'm trying to like summarize this, like, can we, so what, what, what are, where do we see the possibility, say, for example, for political change in Kenya? If the, if politics is dominated by what you describe as uh, geriatric men or recycling of, uh, these uh, sets of elites, and you rightly point out, it's also the case that in Kenya there is a history of people actually uh, protesting in the 90s. There, there was this like you know, as you said, civil society uh, pushing for for a democracy after Moi. So, there, so there's two things that have been happening. You refer one 
to the fact that Kenya does have a left tradition. So my so this is a kind of a question is sort of like one is what what is this is there a Kenyan left? Is it if it's if not what happened to it? Um, and the related question is how is Kenya being impacted by the current sort of energy around Black Lives Matter? So. To you know, to ask, I'm sort of putting a little bit of meat onto the question. What the question was suggesting is like, like what, what other, what other kinds of political futures are possible for Kenya, and where is it coming from? And I'll mention one other quick thing. There's a new movie that's about to come out called Softy, about Boniface Mwangi, who I know is sort of like known in Kenya for a young photographer, uh, who's known for these sort of spectacular public events of kind of trying to shame uh, public officials. So, you know it. You know, I've thrown a lot out there, but like, can you sort of just sketch that world of like, what is politically possible? What's the role of the left in it? What is the role of Pan-Africanism or left slash Black Lives Matter? So, you know, I I see a lot of hope in the young, like multiple grassroots organizations that are, are sprouting everywhere, who are not only uh, remembering histories that people don't want to, don't, Remembering histories that people have forgotten. For example, Mau Mau was proscribed in this country until 2002. That's 40 years after independence. So that can tell you the priorities of, this, of, of these elite men. But I see a lot of hope in young grassroots organizations. For example, in the social justice centers, there are about 30 social justice centers in this country, uh, which have sprung up by uh, local volunteer activists who are trying to, who are connecting local issues to broader national issues. So issues like police violence, issues like uh, land grabbing, uh, all of these issues and, and trying to have a bigger framework to have a stronger front against the, the political violence that exists in this country. So that's one front. Please do not look for the in Kenya's trade unions because the potential for trade union in Kenya is just uh, a corporate institution and it's run by a man who has not who has been in power for 20 years and is he's just a corporate he's just a corporate entity and he goes on tv to talk about his uh sexual abilities that's that's what this man does so please unfortunately the coalition for trade unions even if they have an amazing history with makan singh uh who was a young man from he was a south asian man who brought African, black and Indian workers together uh, to form a trade union in the 50s. And then he was uh, detained for 11 years. I think he's the, one of the longest um, serving political prisoners in the country. So we have a history with Makan Singh, all of these people, but trade unions, unfortunately, mm -hmm. while the workers may have the desire, the, the umbrella uh, organization has just been co-opted by this, just some mafioso, really, unfortunately. But please, I, I hope I'm not uh, making everyone just run home and cry. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of hope. There's so many young people who who were protesting on the streets two weeks ago. They took puffins to parliament because they're like, you can't kill us anymore. So if you're in Kenya, join your local uh, social justice center. Join a local grassroots organization because they're doing the work. And I mean, it's incremental. It's and they are coming on the backs of people like Mwa Kenya in the 1980s, who was a coalition of, of really like radical Kenyans, some of whom were forced into exile, but questioning the Moi government. They're coming on the backs of the Mau Mau. So they're coming, they're learning from Piogama Pinto, Mekatili Wamenza, uh, who used to sing, and who, like an old auntie who was 60, who used to go from village singing against the colonial government. So this, there are these histories that are informing young people's actions today. And even if formal politics is just dying, it's just, uh, it's just like a soap opera for men. Just be strong <laughs> because people are doing the work. To, sorry, to maybe ask a follow-up question. I don't know if you want to go, Sean. I don't well, know if you want to say something. Can I I the, the I'm so sorry. Yeah, I didn't say anything about Black Lives Matter. Um, yeah, go ahead. Answer that. Yeah. Just related. Kenyans have always been internationalists. Every you there's like in South Africa, people are demanding that apartheid ends in Palestine. 
they remember Venezuelans, they remember Cubans, they remember uh, like, unfortunately we invaded Somalia, but we people, are, everyday Kenyans don't want Somalia to have been invaded, you know? And equally, um, Black Lives Matter is like, Af Africans are, are down for African lives everywhere to, to be lived with dignity and to be free from violence. Currently, um, about two weeks ago, there was a protest in Kenya. Um, there were two protests. There was one against killings in Kenya that was not organized, thinking about, intentionally thinking about George Floyd, but was made to correspond to that moment. But there was an actually, um, there was an event organized to protest outside the American embassy for George Floyd. So in as much as that wasn't big and in as much as uh, the protests kind of flowed into each other and were, I think they were registered as a protest intentionally for George Floyd. They were, they were also for all the Kenyan lives who've been killed here in three years between 2013 and 2016, 803 Kenyans were killed by the police. So it was it was as much for George Floyd as those Kenyans, um, and and even if maybe um, in our daily actions we don't register, we are not referencing Black Lives Matter. We're not saying, uh, you know, we're not we don't have that slogan for sure. We are working in all these actions that young people are doing, whether explicit or not. They connect to this struggle for for you know, for black lives and for all, yeah, I'm not gonna say all that, but for black lives and for like people to live with dignity everywhere and for a, a more concerted Pan-African struggle. Yeah, um, I, I was gonna ask a different question, but now I've thought of another question to ask. Um, just a quick question. Uh, you know, Kenya, as you've already described, has already strong history of protesting police violence. Um, and unfortunately, that's not the case here in South Africa. And what I think South Africans are now considering at the moment is whether or not we should adopt the slogans, strategy, and tactics of Black Lives Matter to fight against police violence at home, or should we be drawing on our own radical history and heritage and you guys have gone the route of drawing from a vibrant tradition which you already have. And do you think that's a, a much better route to go about it? Because one of the reasons why I'm skeptical about being quick to emulate Black Lives Matter is just that I think it's it's so vulnerable to co-option. And I think you know one of the biggest contradictions that emerged in the wake of the George Floyd protests spreading worldwide is looking at how national governments have been quick to express solidarity with what's happening in the States, but have been averting their gaze to what's happening at home. The African Union condemning George Floyd's killings, but saying nothing about police killings on the continent. The African National Congress in South Africa, for example, launching an anti-racism week in light of what's happening in America, but having for the longest time been ignorant of police violence at home. You know, I mean, related to that, Kenya is now, I don't know how it got in, but it's now in <laughs> a non-permanent member of the Security Council, uh, the UN Security Council. When, for all it does to its citizens, it should be, if there's an insecurity council, Kenya should be number one in that insecurity council because there's so much violence. And tomorrow, actually, the, the, um, the cop who killed a 13-year-old boy during the pandemic, during the lockdown, is going to be arraigned in court and he's been charged for the murder of Yasin Moyo, but he's planning to uh, obviously plead not guilty. But why I bring this up is because, you know, as much as we we know all struggles are connected, if we fail to mention the name of Yasin Moyo or Charles Minor, because of the, the, the traction and much needed and necessary traction of George Floyd. We'll remember George Floyd more than we'll remember Yasin Moyo. And that we, we, we don't want to make that trade and that shouldn't be the question, but we, we also need to make sure our struggles for, for justice are also localized. So we, we memorialize the names of these young people who were killed. And over the last two years, going on three years, there's been a march 
the first, there's been a march by uh, young activists from poor urban settlements. The march is called Saba Saba March for Our Lives. And over a thousand strong young people marching and demanding an end to police killings. And so th this is what we are building on. And it's very important to connect and to, to contest the killings of uh, our people in the US. But we also need to make sure that our names these names resonate in the Kenyan imagination because also, unfortunately, many Kenyans don't know Yasin Moyo, they don't know Charles Minor, they don't know Alex Wangare, they only know George Floyd. So we, part of contest, not contesting, but trying to assert our names is, is not just uh, to show an independence, but to make sure our Kenyans also value the young poor people that are being killed here and not, not being, being uh, like, thinking about black bodies in the US, but not thinking about black bodies here. So it's a fight also here to make sure people value their own people. I mean, they're, they're young people in this country. So um, I actually noticed that there's a, a, re, a viewer named Bo Bolo, who says powerful statements of internationalism and solidarity and the real challenge to building real change. Thank you, Will. Uh, um, Sorry, thank you, Wangu Kamari, Will Shoki. So you guys getting some shout outs. Which is like, I think we're sort of kind of near the end of the program. And I but I have to, we have to ask you about this. And I want you to take time to talk about this also, which is there's a special project that we started at Africa as a country uh, with you and a bunch of other comrades in, in Nairobi. And I wanted you to talk about that project. It's called um, Capitalism in My City. Um, and specifically, so just to lead in, I know you earlier, you sort of just gave a, you, you, you sort of, I would say like you give a drive-by when you said uh, something about Kenyan capitalism. Can you just set the scene about capitalism in Kenya, capitalism in Nairobi, the project that we're trying to do together and some of the outcomes that we, we're trying to get out of. And in the way, I think you sort of, again, also said a little bit about uh, um, uh, Matare, this Matare Social Justice Center, which is where this work is going to come out from. So can you just set, tell us a little bit about that? Because I think our, our listeners uh, and viewers would like to know about that that project, yeah. Thanks, Sean. I think maybe I need to say thank you also to Africa as a Country and also Shuttleworth Foundation for making this possible. But And also the young activists who are taking the time to write about their experiences uh, of everyday capitalism in their lives. So this project came about... Um, from conversations and collaborations. It, it's maybe it's direct history is a forum uh, co-hosted by Africa's a Country, Rope Journal and uh, Madare Social Justice Center in, Mad in Madare, a forum in, in 2019 called Why Don't Kenyans Talk About Capitalism? This was important for a number of reasons. I mean, it's, uh, we always, we're always talking about corruption. We're always talking about poverty, but we, we fail to look, to follow the, the DNA and see the genealogy. And so we, we didn't want to, to, as a community organization, but as academics and allies, we didn't want to, we wanted to interrogate, why is this silence uh, around capitalism? And that led to the development of a project of, of composed of eight articles and four videos. Currently, there's only one month so far, that talk about um, everyday capitalism in Kenya and that these these are produced and written by uh, young activists who live in poor urban spaces in, in Nairobi. And the first article talked about um, really the, the labor crisis and the, the unemployment that young people are facing and the barriers to work and to livelihood um, that they're facing, and this is important. And future articles, there's one on the criminalization of youth that talks about police brutality and exploitation of young people, and that's the next article. Uh, but there'll also be reflections on healthcare because um, there's really no, despite the, the this being guaranteed in our constitution, there's no access to good quality healthcare for poor people, and so they they pay all of these taxes because we. Our, we now have this ridiculous ta um, tax burden because of all the debt our country has. 
but they have no access to clean water, water is privatized, healthcare is privatized. So these are all the issues that will be written about. But through through the experiences, through people's experiences with them, like real visceral experiences with with all of these articulations of capitalism in in Kenya that unfortunately are not written about in the newspapers or by academics because we there's no it's a very historical analysis of our country's condition and so we want young people to to make it and they're doing it themselves making these connections and showing the violences of, of like how they experience the articulations of capitalism in their lives Unless Will has any other questions, I wanted to ask you the last question. Which we, oh, Will, you have a question. Go ahead. I do have a question, but I'm going to let you go ahead because mine might be more intriguing question. We have to go have dinner. Um, <laughs> I, okay, here's my question, which we did not, which which is a, which is like a zinger. Now I'm just messing with you. What are you reading at the moment, Wangui? This is the last question. What are you reading? Wow, I need to tell you about this really great book. Um, and I think I, it's by, I think his name is Robbie Shilliam, called The Black Pacific. And he's talking about blackness and identity and Pan-Africanism in New Zealand. And I think that's really, I haven't got very far in the moment, but I would really recommend this book called The Black Pacific. I think, I think it's somewhere close by, one second. Uh, okay, maybe it's not close by, but I would really recommend this book. Unfortunately, I can't remember the whole name, but uh, I th just Google The Black Pacific by Robbie Shilliam. Really, really important also to make those connections and that have been brought to, to the fore also more so because of Black Lives Matter with the protests in Australia and New Zealand. But it's really important. It was, he, he begins by connecting Rastafarians uh, by describing an encounter between Rastafarians from Britain, black Rastafarians, also uh, who's, who have their like origins, but also philosophical uh, be like belongings in Jamaica and their connection with with like black people in, in New Zealand. And so it's a really good book. Sorry, I can't tell you more about it yet, but. It's funny that you picked that book because in a couple of weeks, I don't know if it's maybe two or three weeks from now, we plan to bring in um, two other contributing editors, uh, Omar Ba and Samar Bulusi, to talk about international relations and its sort of very testy relationship with not just race, but just like uh, power, you know, the production of knowledge, um, the relationship between the first and the third, and Robbie Shilliam, uh, he's sort of a figure that's been involved in these debates. There's been a number of debates around IR, and he's been a key figure in this. So it's it's sort of, uh, is it fortuitous that we end on that note, that you kind of made a connection right. for us uh, to another program? I think Will has something to say. Will I, has something to say, yes. It's not it's not necessarily a burning question, but it's, it's you, know, you mentioned this book, and Having mentioned this book, I'm thinking about the book that I'm reading, which I mentioned in the start, which is World Making After Empire. And what I'm struck by your description of this book and the book that I'm reading is that there was a time on this continent when people were engaging in dialogues across borders and the political imagination was expansive. And in your discussion just now about a lot of the grassroots mobilization that's taking place in, in Kenya, I want to ask a question about where do you see that going? Do you see that crystallizing into some kind of political formation that can really contest for power? And what do you see as being the prospects for left-wing politics on the continent, you know, broadly? I mean, the question that I'm wondering now is, you know, why don't Africans talk about socialism? So um, maybe that's something we should think about and how we can connect these mobilizations across the continent. You know, I'm so happy I told you about this book and not the other trashy books I'm reading. So I'm really, it's really good that I <laughs> I told you about this Robbie Shilliam book, but it is really, I'm I'm really captivated by it. Um, related to your question, William, I'm really, you know, part of the work of, of the social justice centers is political education and the 
it's not like, I guess that can take many forms, uh, but this one is very like collaborative. It's not like saying all Africans need to be communists today and that's it. But it's, it's, it draws on, on people's histories and it draws on, on it's, it's grounded in the material struggles of people's locations. And so it's really, it makes sense that way. Even if it, it, people will talk about Mao and then someone will talk about like, you know, from Mao to like Rodney to, to anyone. But it's, it's, um, it's, I think the word in English is dialogical, and, but it's also critical and reflexive. And where will this go, you know? I, maybe as, when I was like 20 and I was like, the revolution is happening today, I would tell you, the revolution is happening in two weeks, get ready comrade, let's meet in the forest, all these things. Where is it going to go? You know, I can't tell you, but I can just tell you the incremental steps that people are taking that are more in my, not so many years, but a few years on uh, in this country are really powerful. And I really hope, I can't say when, but already in, in, in if in two years, 20 justice centers have come about, that says something by their own instigation, their own desire to, 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 to create like dignity in a country that actually cares about 47 million people. So I, I'm not sure we'll, we'll go, maybe I'm more cautious in my old age. I mean, when things will happen, but I do, this, the center can't hold, the writing's on the wall. Um, so I, it's gonna happen. I just, I'm not sure when. That is a, that is a really good positive mood to, to end things. Because remember at the beginning you were like, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm like sending you all to go cry. Well, I tell, I tell you, you, you do have a little poetry there at the end with the like, yo, I don't know where this can go, but there's but the a- center can't hold. <laughs> Well, we can walk away today saying the center can at all. Thank you, Wangui for coming. Thank I'm you all. And I would recommend that people check out on the website. There's a, there's a, it's called Series Capitalism in My City. If you search for it, um, it will come up. And there's already two articles on there. And we're probably trying to publish simultaneously, both in English and in, um, in Swahili. Um, so, yeah, we're looking forward to like the next installment, which I understand it's coming. It's close. Um, it's, it's about to drop. So, look out for that on the website. So, thank you, Wangui Kamari. Well, Shoki, as always, myself, uh, Sean Jacobs, and we hope to see you again next week, same time on Tuesdays. And also for those people who made comments and who ended up having their own debates in the chat. Um, uh, I mean, you know, I think uh, shouting them out quickly, Zorodi, Elirido, and Bo Bolio. Um, thanks for listening and thanks for taking part. And I see you guys next week. <laughs>